Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we find out what's behind an apparent surge in counterfeit toonies circulating in this country, particularly in the Toronto area, and how to spot one of those fake $2 coins. We ask why the Trudeau government seems to have stopped appointing senators of late. It's been nearly a year now. The Senate is nearly 20% vacant. Of the 105 seats in the upper house, 17 are unoccupied, most west of Quebec. Why does it matter? We find out. We hear from an air passenger rights advocate about why consumers need to make sure airlines are held to account for delays and cancelled flights with Canadian airlines and airports ranking near the worst in the world for delays this past long weekend. But first, we're learning more about the suspects in a bank robbery and shootout with police on Vancouver Island last week. The 22-year-old brothers were killed. They had no criminal record. They were not known to police. We speak to a retired police officer on Vancouver Island about the crime and why it is so reminiscent of a high-profile bank heist in California 25 years ago. But we begin tonight on Vancouver Island, where we continue to learn more about a bank heist and shootout with police last week in the greater Victoria area that left two suspects dead and six police officers wounded, three seriously. The suspects have now been identified as 22-year-old brothers, twins from the community of Duncan. That's about 45 kilometers north of Victoria, Matthew and Isaac Octorloni. They had no criminal records. They were not known to police. Here's what one of the 22 people who were in the bank at the time, Shelley Fryer, told Global News about the early moments of the heist. He went so calmly, we're being robbed. And he got a key. And as he got the key, I kind of went, I said, should I get down? And he said, just a sec. And I was going to go by my chair. I was now going to crouch by my chair. And I look up and in the doorway is a guy standing there with an assault rifle, balaclava, vest, some guards on his legs. Just standing there, quietly, standing there, calm, didn't say really anything at all. The manager held the key out, and they said, vault, and the manager gave him, tried to give him the key to go. He's like, you know, go. So off they walked to the vault. Very calm, the dead silence in the bank, dead silence. That was one of those people who was in the bank at the time, Shelley Fryer. Of course, luckily, all bank patrons and staff escaped unharmed. Soon after what Shelley Fryer described, there was apparently an explosion. Then this gunfire erupted as, as the suspects and police uh, shot at police and police returned fire. Oh my god! Holy oh my god! We are witnessing a bank robbery. Police Chief Dean Duffy had this to say soon after. Multiple officers responded to the scene and encountered the armed suspects who fired at police. Two suspects who were shot by police died at the scene. Six GVERT officers suffered gunshot wounds and were transported to hospital. 
That was um, Dean Duffy, Chief of Police in Saanich, the day after the shooting last Wednesday, talking about what had happened. Well, the Globe and Mail now reports that more than a dozen posts on Isaac Akatoni's Instagram featured what appear to be glorifications of violence towards state officials and police. Those posts include media on a 1997 North Hollywood bank robbery attempt. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Because joining me now is Chris Horsey. He's a retired Saanich Police Detective Staff Sergeant, former firearms instructor. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, great. Thanks for having me. So what we know now about uh, the two suspects, are you surprised that they were not known to police, that they were seemed to have no criminal records, really had flown under the radar? Yeah, it certainly was surprising. I think uh, I think most police officers, retired or otherwise, would have perhaps suspected that these would be more of your career criminals, uh, bank robberies, are often perpetrated by people who are well-known to police and uh, have been within the criminal justice system for some time. So, yeah, it certainly was a shock to, to hear their age and the fact that they, they don't really have a police history at all. We played a clip there from Shelley Fryer, one of the witnesses, describing the fact that they were quite quite armored, you know, that they were wearing a lot of body armor, it would seem, and that they were very calm. Did that, is that, what does that tell you? Well, earlier in the week, I'd made uh, made a comment before we even knew their identities, you know, about the similarities in uh, those initial witness reports about their calm demeanor, about how they were addressed. And uh, my mind immediately went back to the uh, Bank of America shootout, which took place, you know, many years ago, actually before uh, these two people were even born. Um, but there were so many striking similarities that that's immediately where my mind went. Yeah, tell me about that, because that was, as, as you mentioned, that was also sort of a pinnacle moment in policing as well. That became a very, uh, one that was, a lot of lessons were learned from. What happened there, and why were they similar? Well, the Bank of America, uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, it was 1997, so quite a, quite a time ago now. Um, but it happened in North Hollywood, where the two suspects entered the Bank of America, and they were uh, protected basically from head to toe. They were wearing uh, heavy, heavy body armor. They also had their lower extremities uh, covered and protected. And uh, they were carrying, you know, massive firepower, um, both with uh, weapons that uh, were fully automatic and had hundreds and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. So they had a very calm demeanor. They spent a considerable time in the bank. And when they exited the bank, um, they casually walked out and engaged uh, an underwhelmed police with, uh, you know, with with heavy firepower, the, the police of the day. And this wasn't a rural, you know, small town America. This is the LAPD. This is one of the biggest cities in America. Um, simply really didn't have an answer to this firepower. So it became a landmark sort of incident in America. It started uh, obviously with LAPD where they increased their ability to respond to such incidents. And that really uh, went across America and of course uh, came north into Canada and even uh, the local police departments here on Vancouver Island, probably about 10 or so years ago, uh, went to a, you know, we historically used to carry a shotgun, um, but that changed over to, uh, at the time, was a, it was the G36, which basically is a military-grade rifle. And we're seeing that all across the country where uh, police agencies are switching over and ensuring that they have some sort of long gun in the event of one of these incidents occurring. 
And what about um, what happened last week in Saanich? Uh, so reminded you of the 1997 heist, because I gather there were quite a few similarities. Yeah, and, and my my information, like most people's, was simply coming from the media reports, because I'm, I'm retired now from policing. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, there was the one witness who talked about their very, very calm demeanor and that they didn't appear to be in any sort of haste to actually leave the bank. Um, and then the manner in which they were dressed, from the balaclavas to the body armor to uh, having... Uh, and I'm not sure what they had on their lower extremities, but they clearly had per, had taken steps to protect themselves. And then, of course, when they left the bank, um, there was absolutely no compunction to to engage the police with fire with fire and to start shooting at the police. So, I mean, all of those things uh, led my mind to that that North Hollywood uh, incident back in 1997. Because in all my years of policing, the people robbing the banks. They want to get in, they want to get the money, and they want to get out as fast as possible. This doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, um, I w- that's um, funny you should mention that, because I would imagine, in your experience, you would not have seen a bank robbery like this one, perhaps other than stories of the North Hollywood robbery back when. Yeah, and we've had some, whole, uh, you know, I'd call it a higher profile, where Perhaps a suspect has come in and fired a shot into the ceiling to get everyone's attention. I mean, those have occurred, but really, first off, bank robberies in general are on the decline. Um, it's almost becoming a crime of the past because there's really little money to be gained and a high likelihood of being apprehended. In fact, um, of all the cases that came through our detective office, the vast majority of uh, robberies were, were solved. Um, because the people that are doing them are so well known to police. However, um, you know, uh, it, it's just uh, it's just such a unique set of circumstances to have it so brazen and to be so heavily armed. Like I said, most of these people committing these bank robberies are desperate for the money. They'll pass a note and uh, they'll leave without any violence whatsoever. So to have this sort of scenario uh, leads me to believe that there was there was a lot of other things going on besides their desire to rob the bank. Right. That was, uh, I think that's where a lot of people have been going with this, although all speculation at this point, I know, as the investigation continues. I'm speaking with Chris Horsey. He is a retired member of the Saanich Police Department, uh, former police detective staff, staff sergeant, former firearms instructor there as well. Uh, we're talking about uh, the suspects, Matthew and Isaac Octoloni, uh, believed to have been responsible for a bank heist uh, in Saanich last week at a shootout with police. We're learning more about them. No criminal records, unknown to police, um, and also just what uh, the, the similarities that existed between what happened in Saanich last week uh, and a bank robbery back in 1997 in North Hollywood. There were a lot of similarities between the two, including a willingness, it would seem, to engage with police almost right away, the moment police arrived. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just where the investigation goes from here, some of the challenges. we, uh, As uh, as Chris has reminded us, he is retired, so um, we're just asking an expert opinion here, and uh, we'll get back uh, after this with, with more on the case. My guest this half hour is Chris Horsey. He's a retired Saanich Police Detective Staff, Staff Sergeant, former firearms instructor. We're talking about what more we know now about that very high-profile heist last week in Saanich and the greater Victoria area and a shootout with police that followed the similarities between that event and a 1997 bank robbery in North Hollywood of a Bank of America where there was also a shootout uh, with police along and drawn out one. Um, and the fact that the two suspects in this case, both brothers, twins, 22 
22 years old, Matthew and Isaac Octorloni of Duncan, which is about 45 minutes north of Victoria, between Victoria and Nanaimo, had no criminal record, were not known to police. Uh, there's some suggestions from some of their uh, social media posts that they had uh, appeared to have bought guns, used guns. Uh, there was even something about the 1997 North Hollywood bank robbery, uh, actually, on one of them. Uh, Chris, th- this would be, I gather, a pretty fairly complex investigation if, you, if you're trying to figure out who these two were, maybe why they did what they did. Yeah, certainly. And I think we have to keep in mind is that it's not singularly the police investigation because there's mm-hmm. also a Coroner's Act investigation and they have their own authorities and mandates. And then we have the third concurrent investigation, which is from the IIO, which is the Independent Investigations Office of BC, who will be investigating the police uh, action at the scene. So you you have three ongoing investigations, all requiring the same resources. So all would like to have the same access to the crime scene, uh, et cetera. So there's lots of, of processing. I know people maybe wonder why it took two, three, four days. You have a substantial crime scene that's occurred, and yet you have multiple agencies that need to access it, process it. And, and again, as time goes on, we'll start to learn more, but this will certainly be a very uh, lengthy investigation. And I know that people have made some comments about, well, you know, the two suspects, they're deceased. So in that regard the police investigation really almost starts to take a backseat to the Coroner's Act investigation and the IIO investigation. So the police will certainly assist and help facilitate, but if there's no uh, criminal charges forthcoming, then the police investigation really is, is coming to a conclusion. And uh, a lot of the responsibilities will fall on those other agencies. As someone who is a firearms instructor, I mean, you just get the sense that it could have been much worse than it was. Even for, I mean, I know there's been three police officers who were seriously hurt. We don't know their conditions. We're going to find out more about that tomorrow, I understand. But just looking at the circumstances, it's a wonder that more people weren't hurt in this. It's it's amazing that we haven't lost uh, any police officers in this encounter. I have no knowledge about what weapons uh, the suspect had, but clearly... Mm -hmm. Um, they were able to engage the police and actually, you know, strike officers. So, um, you know, the, the level of the proficiency of weapons training when you have a long gun like that, if you're in pretty close proximity, you're, you're usually going to hit what you're aiming at. Um, it's a lot different when you're firing a pistol sometimes. Uh, you know, the, the dynamics, too, of being in, in a very, very stressful armed encounter are going to physiologically change your body. You're going to have to fight through that to even to even engage with someone who's shooting bullets at you. So these members are highly, highly trained. Um, again, for those members, this, this was Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team members. So this is our ERT members, mm-hmm. and they train. Uh, it's not a full-time ERT here in Greater Victoria, but they do train a substantial amount of uh, weeks a year together. And uh, they train for incidents of this nature. So uh, I'm very grateful that they were on scene. Um, I think, uh, you know, the outcomes, uh, the outcomes could have been much, much worse and much different if uh, ERT didn't happen to be in the area and responding first to this incident.
Yeah, because I think if you look back at the 1997 North Hollywood uh, heist, one of the problems was that they the, the SWAT team took for a long time to show up because they were a long way away. Uh, and that was one of the issues. They were severely uh, overpowered by these two suspects. Yeah. In this case, I gather that was not the case. Uh, yeah, and so you're dealing with in North in North Hollywood, both both had military grade uh, weapons. There were two different uh, weapons, but they actually fired the exact same NATO uh, NATO ammunition. And you know, this is sort of military grade uh, weaponry versus police carrying their you know service handguns. And it, it simply is no contest uh, for those, and I'm sure there's lots of listeners familiar with firearms, would, would recognize that, you know, a handgun simply is not even in the same ballpark as one of these, uh, a military-grade assault-style rifle. And a lot of people use the term bulletproof vest, um, but they're not bulletproof. So uh, police officers wear what's often referred to as soft body armor, and that's so because you're working a 12-hour shift and you're wearing it all day. And the, that body armor is really designed to stop your own ammunition that you're carrying. So most police officers' body armor will stop a pistol, but it will not stop a rifle round. So uh, anything out of a military-grade firearm, such as a, a rifle, anything of that nature, would uh, the reality is, and it's a grim reality, would go through the front of the body armor, through my body, and out the back. Um, so soft body armor, again, is minimal, minimal defense against weapons of this grade. So, um, and, and that's exactly what we saw in North Hollywood. Police were simply overpowered by uh, just far superior firepower. Chris, I really appreciate your insight tonight. Thanks so much for talking to me. Hey, thanks for having me on. And uh, again, just grateful for the response and grateful that, uh, you know, those police officers are all going to survive. When you think about things that you, currencies that you might want to counterfeit, the toonie probably doesn't come to mind. The $2 coin, it seems bulky and heavy and not worth much. What are you going to do with it? You know, buy coffee? I don't know. Um, but it turns out, the RCMP recently discovered thousands of counterfeit tunies in circulation. They had carried out this year-long investigation, apparently, and made an arrest. They found 10,000 tunies in the Canadian banking system. They arrested a 68-year-old uh, in Richmond Hill, Ontario, just outside of Toronto, arrested last month and charged with possession of counterfeit money. Those allegations have not been proven in court. Um, so what was going on? Why would someone counterfeit a toonie? So it turns out reports of the fakes first surfaced during the first half of 2020 when a merchant found 75 in his cash register alone. Uh, you can tell that they're fake. Specifically, one of the easiest ways is by looking at the front right paw of the polar bear on the toonie. In the real one, it's a perfectly made one. It looks like a paw. In the fake one, it's cleft, or that's why they call them camel toe tunies, because it looks like a camel's foot. Um, and that's one way, that is the most conspicuous flaw. Uh, and the bounties allege they're being made in China. Uh, so perhaps that's where they're coming from. But I really want to know more about this, because it's such an interesting, who would counterfeit a toonie, and why, and how many would you have to counterfeit to make it worthwhile? Well, you know someone who knows something about this? Brent Mackey. He's the treasurer of the Waterloo Coin Society, the region's only coin club. He also has a website devoted to this particular toonie. Brent, thanks for your time tonight. 
Thank you very much for having me, Ben. It's great to be on the program. So how did you come across uh, the, the so-called these, these counterfeit tunies? Uh, well, I was alerted to the, uh, the counterfeit tunies or the camel toe counterfeit tunies, as we've called them, uh, by a friend of mine in uh, 2021. Uh, he directed me to a post online that's, uh, that started talking about these, and it sounded pretty interesting. So I uh, went out to the, my local bank, got a bunch of tunies, started going through them all, found a few of the counterfeits and thought, well, that was easy. That was fun. Let's do it again. And since then I searched over 500 boxes of tunies. That's over half a million dollars of coin. Uh, certainly not all at once. It's just the same p- small pile of cash rolling over and over again. And uh, I found a ton of these counterfeit coins and I continue to do so. Tell me about them. How hard are they to tell apart? You referred to the camel toe tunie, and that's on the polar bear's paw, I gather. Is that really the, the definitive way you can tell them apart? That is the 100% guaranteed way to tell uh, that you've got a counterfeit tunie. Uh, there certainly are a couple of other uh, things to look out for, such as differences in the font on particularly the dates, uh, but other aspects as well. Uh, some different quality issues in terms of the engraving not being necessarily as fine. Um, there's some differences in the finish on the coins, which is also a good way to tell, but not reliable. Um, and a few other small details. But that that camel's uh, or that uh, polar bear's front right paw is definitely the 100% guaranteed indicator. If you see that split toe. As, uh, as has been shown on various websites, including my own, cameltoetunies.ca, um, then you've definitely got a counterfeit tunie in your hands. But they're pre- I gather they're pretty good. I mean, it's hard to, to buy the weight and so on and the feel. Unless you know you're, what you're looking for, would it be hard to figure out that you don't have a real one in your hands? Absolutely, yes. The, the counterfeit tunies are made to a quality that is good enough to fool just about anybody, unless you're specifically looking for uh, those indicators. They've got the right coloring. They're the, generally the correct metal. Uh, they've got the right feel in terms of weight and texture and that sort of thing. Um, and even even the details of them, again, unless you're looking very closely at them, you're not going to tell that there's anything different with them. Just from your own investigation, so to speak, do you have any sense of how prevalent they are? Uh, yes, for sure. So in, in my findings, uh, I've been finding these things anywhere up to 10% in some uh, boxes. Uh, now, that's a, a local sample just outside of the greater Toronto area where they're, they're particularly hot spot. Uh, but outside of that, uh, even as far as other sides of the country, there's, they're not as prevalent. Um, but in my average numbers, I'm seeing anywhere from uh, 1% to 5%, depending on the day. Uh, so that's a lot of counterfeit coins. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. So It absolutely it, is. It always begs the question, because I think this is what probably flummoxes people a bit, is that why would you counterfeit a toonie at such a small de- denomination? Well, that's a great question. You know, everybody is thinking that same question. Why would anybody counterfeit a toonie? It's only two bucks. You're right. It is only two dollars, but when you're when you're producing millions of counterfeit tunies, you're able to spread the cost of those out over each one of those coins, bringing the average cost per coin down well below face value, such that these coins could easily be produced for less than fifty cents each. And when you're making that money, 
it's all about the money. You're making tons of it in both sense of the word. Do we have any sense of how these are being circulated? Well, yes and no. Um, Many of them are getting introduced into the banking system somehow, uh, but uh, it's unclear at this point exactly how that's being done. Uh, the the person that was arrested recently um, out of the Newmarket area uh, was caught because they brought a box of, t- of fake toonies into a bank. And then uh, after that person left the bank, it was detected that these coins were all fake. So that's how that person was eventually tracked down. But uh, for this many coins to insert or to be found in circulation, uh, that is not a sustainable way of doing it. They've got to have a better way of getting them into circulation in, in bulk. I don't know what that is. I could give you some Hollywood-inspired uh, <laughs> theories, but uh, it's not based on any form of reality. <laughs> and I'd be very curious on exactly how the, this many coins is getting into circulation. It's certainly not somebody spending them one or two at a time at Tim Hortons. Right. Uh, not, not to cast aspersions on any one place, but do we know where they're coming from? The theory is that they're coming from China right now. Uh, I don't believe that's been confirmed, but uh, I strongly suspect that it will be the case. Uh, I don't think that they're at this point a domestically produced item. China has the ability to, uh, to produce all sorts of things at reasonably high qualities and extremely low cost. And uh, the, these coins just tick all the boxes for being produced in China. Do you have any sense of or any idea of when this may have started and, and, and are, is the quality the same through and through? They feel like they're all coming from the same place or is it, are they different or there, are there a bunch of this? Is there a lot of this going on? Or, uh, sure. So that's a, a big question to unpack there. So let's, let's go with the history. So they've, uh, they were first reported in March of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Coincidence? Probably. Um, but uh, there was a retailer in uh, the Greater Toronto area that discovered about 75 of the counterfeit coins in his till all at once. So somebody must have made a big purchase, paid with a roll and a half, or actually that would be about three rolls of counterfeit tunies. And uh, he discovered it and, and posted it online. And then um, they've been found uh, all over the place, particularly in the Greater Toronto area ever since. Uh, as for the quality of these coins, they're pretty well all the same uh, as when they were first found uh, up to now. Um, but on the note of quality, I do want to mention that they're not being produced to the same level that the Royal Canadian Mint would produce a coin. The Royal Canadian Mint produces some of the best coins in the world. Um, but these coins are being produced for quantity, not quality. So to that end, you can see a lot of defects in the coins, in the manufacturing process of them. Uh, they're, uh, they're producing the coins using dies. So one die on the bottom, one die on the top, and a blank coin in the middle. Smack them together, they impress an image on the coin. And they, uh, they use these dies until they virtually explode. Okay, That's why we're seeing cracks on a lot of these coins. Uh, they're also not paying attention very well when they're using them. And sometimes they smack the dies together without a blank in the middle. This produces an image of both sides of the coin on both dies. Then when you use them again, you create, you get a fake toonie with an image of the polar bear around the image of the queen and maybe a part of the crown over top of the polar bear's back or something. 
Now, there are other countries where, where the value of a coin can be more than $2 Canadian. I think I'm thinking of the UK where the pounds, you know, the two pound coin is, is more valuable. Um, do we have a sense of this is happening anywhere else? Uh, well, funny you should bring up the United Kingdom. Uh, a few years ago, uh, going up to about the mid-2010s, uh, the United Kingdom had a very severe counterfeiting problem with its one-pound coins, the round pounds. And they were seeing counterfeit rates across the country of about 10%. Uh, so you could go get a roll of pound coins from the bank, and one out of every 10 of them was probably counterfeit. Uh, that was a ridiculous problem, and it generated a bit of a currency crisis in that uh, in that country, to the point where the Royal Mint decided to uh, cease production of the round point, round pound coins, and introduce a brand new bimetallic uh, high security one pound coin. I believe it was started in 2017, but I'm not 100% sure on that date right off the tip of my tongue. And uh, ever since then, they've been putting out those coins and completely replacing all the old one pound coins in circulation um the problem isn't as bad here in canada um but it certainly should result in a withdrawal of some of the earlier tunies that were produced uh, from 1996 to 2012 since then the royal canadian mint has been issuing higher security coins uh, but they have not withdrawn some of the older ones and all of the counterfeit ones that we're seeing are that old design. So if the Royal Canadian Mint wanted to really do something about this problem, they can start withdrawing some of those old security coins, take out all the counterfeits with them, and uh, fill the gap with some brand new high security coins. Yeah, that was going to be my, that was what I was going to ask you to end all this was, how do you um, solve this? Exactly. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Uh, that would be the the way to do this with the Royal Canadian Mint. Uh, they have the means of pulling out selected from circulation. They've been doing it for a number of years with some of the older nickel-based coins. Uh, that's called their Alloy Recovery Program, and that's a whole discussion in and amongst itself. But they've, they've got the technology to pull out these coins. They just need to start doing it and replace it with, uh, with brand new coins. In the meantime, Brent, I gather, I gather you're going to continue looking for these things. I am. I am. I'm uh, continuing to look for these things uh, every uh, week and I continue to find them just as easily as, as ever. What do you do with them when you find them? I, I gather, obviously you can't spend them because that would be illegal, but what, what do you well, do with yes, them? Yes, I find can't them? spend them. I, uh, I do have a few of them that I use for, for reference purposes because I do have a website at cameltotoonies.ca that uh, describes some of the defects in them and the history behind these counterfeits and a few others. Um, but most of them, they all get returned to the bank. I have got a great relationship with my bank that uh, allows me to return those coins. Um, so that's where almost all of them end up again. So you're, you're kind of doing that work for them in some sense. They must know you well by now if you go and get uh, a big box of tunies every day. <laughs> yeah, they, they do know me quite well. So it's to the point where when I walk into the bank and, and somebody sees me, they get my box of coin ready to go. <laughs> Brent, so Brent Mackey, it's great. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It's fascinating. And just one last time for, uh, for listeners to know where they can find out more on your website. 
absolutely. So go to www.cameltoetunies.ca and you can find out all sorts of information about these camel toe counterfeit tunies as well as an earlier issue of counterfeit tunies from 2005 called the Montreal Mint Tunies. Fascinating. And Brent Mackey, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Lots to learn there. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Ben, for having me. I found this story very interesting. It is about Canada, Canada's Senate, which aren't always the two words that make people want to listen to something. But it's important, especially if you're in a province where you don't have your full complement of senators these days. The Senate is nearly 20% vacant these days because the Prime Minister has allowed some seats to go unfilled in some instances for years at a time. Turns out of the 105 seats in the Upper House, 17 are unoccupied. Some provinces, um, most of them west of Quebec, BC is one of them, have been left without representation they are entitled to uh, under the Constitution. Four more senators are slated to retire in the next year when they hit that mandatory retirement age of 75. In fact, the Senate hasn't had a full complement of senators since late 2018. It's been nearly a year now since the last senators were named back in July of 2021. The only province that is fully represented, it turns out, is Quebec, with all 24 of its seats currently filled. Well, joining me now to explain why this matters, why it should matter to you, and what the impact is, is Paul Thomas. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Manitoba and a longtime Senate watcher. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Pleased to be with you. So I'm not sure many Canadians are even aware of what's happened uh, over the past few years to the Senate, but uh, there is an awful lot of vacancies right now. Uh, Just how many and what's going on? Yeah, well, I think there are 17 vacancies currently, which is almost uh, 20% of the membership. So obviously, uh, the government has not gotten around to using the rather elaborate procedure that it established to fill vacancies when they arose in all of the different provinces and territories. And it obviously, in a very busy time with major issues like the pandemic, uh, the war in the Ukraine and uh, inflation uh, and affordability issues and so on, this has taken very much a back burner for the current uh, Trudeau government. Still, there is an impact here because it is representation. And I gather that the, the vacancies aren't necessarily, I mean, while it's widespread, some provinces are, are, have less representation in the Senate than others right now. Yeah, I would start by observing that the Senate is a more useful institution than most Canadians give it credit for. Secondly, I would say that the reforms that Trudeau introduced beginning when he was in opposition in third place in the House of Commons by dropping senators from the National Liberal Caucus, and then when he became prime minister in 2016, creating a new appointment procedure, which was intended to make the Senate more independent and nonpartisan, Those changes have actually improved the Senate, but the current situation where they're failing to fill vacancies in a number of provinces, including major provinces like British Columbia and Ontario and so on, means that the Senate's role as a source of regional representation, as a source of sober second thought on legislation, is being impaired. Uh, Senate leaders will tell you that they're still doing a good job, but they're not doing as good a job as they could if they had the full complement of senators. And vacancies have been allowed to arise in the past under uh, Prime Minister Harper in his time in office 
as part of his strategy to substitute an elected Senate, he allowed vacancies to rise to the number of 22, if I recall correctly. And that really handicapped the Senate in terms of performing the different activities that it undertakes. And I particularly mention among the activities, the conduct of inquiries by Senate committees, which in my opinion is the most valuable work done by the Senate, not just examining bills, but looking at future potential legislation and giving advice to the bureaucracy and to ministers about where they could improve things. And that medium range advice on future policy often has a greater chance of being accepted by governments than attempts to amend legislation for which the prime minister's reputation, the minister's reputation, and even the bureaucracy's re reputation may be attached. They don't like to be told they got it wrong and be forced to change their mind. Yeah, I mean, people who, who might know this, if you've ever witnessed a Senate committee on any number of issues over the years, they do do very good work. And, and it is free of some of the, a bit of the, obviously free a bit of, of a bit of the politics, but also free of some of the spotlight. Uh, so they do do a lot of good work that, that honestly flies under the radar a lot of the time. What has been the impact, uh, do you think, of these vacancies, especially given uh, that there are regional differences? You mentioned BC. I know that a lot of this is happening west, uh, west of Ontario or west of, I guess Quebec's the only place that has a full complement of senators right now? Well, the, the, the composition of the Senate under the new Trudeau procedures is changed. So the, the only remaining partisan group are the Conservative Party of Canada members of the Senate, and they still attend national caucus. But if the liberal senators, or I'm sorry, the independent senators uh, that might have been liberals in the old days, don't go to aren't in cabinet and don't go to caucus, the only chance they have is to exercise indirect influence by studying bills, uh, warning the government about some dangerous features of bills or features that don't command support in their part of the country that they come from and using their pressure on ministers and on government to uh, uh, accept amendments. Uh, and the committee system is almost shut down now, so they're not doing the studies that I mentioned previously. So it, it is a loss of input from the various regions across the country. And that's central to the role of the original role of the Senate as uh, described in the constitution and the constitutional discussions when the country was founded. Uh, and for many Canadians, it won't be seen as a great loss to hear an academic from the middle of the country say that the Senate is not performing as well as it should or it could if it had a full complement of members. But the fact is, that is another source to as check and balances on the ever-increasing power of the Prime Minister. Even under this Prime Minister Trudeau, as opposed to the previous Prime Minister Trudeau, the, the power of the prime minister's office is great. And they put in place this new procedure, which meant there is no longer a predictable government majority in the Senate. The, the new Senate under the Trudeau reforms amends bills more frequently than the old Senate did. Uh, and it may be the case that the current prime minister didn't see through the, all the implications of the reforms that he was introducing and uh, as a consequence, he may have found the new Senate more difficult, more, more of a political headache than he reasoned it would be at the time he was proposing the changes back when he was in third place in the House of Commons. 
Yeah, we spoke actually to Alberta Senator Paula Simons not long ago about Bill S-7, which was one of those legislations that actually, I think, started uh, started debate in the Senate. So an interesting, uh, speaking of the relevance of it still. So is, is this new independent senator set up causing, in part, responsible for some of these delays in finding uh, candidates for these open positions? We don't know uh, fully the reasons behind uh, the failure to... Um, uh, fill these vacancies. It may be that the Trudeau reform plan overbuilt, uh, had too many moving parts, if you were. Uh, there's a national advisory committee which puts names before the prime minister, who then recommends to the governor general to appoint someone to the Senate. And that national body is complemented by provincial bodies that bring names forward to it. Uh, when there's a vacancy occurs in a particular province. So we have uh, inactive, no committees operating in certain provinces. And so if if the process isn't started at that level, there's a backlog develops at the national level. It may be that Trudeau isn't much interested in this machinery of government issue. He'd much rather be on overseas uh, trips uh, representing Canada abroad. He's had all the issues we spoke of early, pandemic, uh, Ukraine, inflation, all of those issues, which are far more important. And the prime minister has to allocate the scarce time that he has to certain issues. One of the things I worry about is that you allow these vacancies to accumulate and then suddenly someone reminds the decision makers in Ottawa that a lot of provinces have gone for months, if not years, without their full complement of senators. So you make a whole batch of them all at once. And then you've got a large batch of uh, new people in the Senate all trying to find their way in what's described as an independent, nonpartisan Senate. So they don't take direction from party bosses anymore. They have to define how they'll play their role as senators all on their own. And that that when you add that to the fact that the House of Commons um, among elected uh, legislatures in Western democracies has one of the highest turnovers in MPs for a variety of reasons. It means that we've got a lot of uh, fresh persons or fresh men and fresh women uh, serving in both halves of our parliament who are often don't understand with great depth of knowledge uh, uh, what goes on within government and the various policy fields. And that was the strength of the old Senate, whatever its problems. One of the strengths was due to committee studies, it often had a better grasp or individual members had a better grasp of certain policy issues. And finally, I would say on this point, there have been some very distinguished, highly accomplished individuals with no partisan background appointed under the Trudeau procedure. And they have been looking for ways to utilize their talents and their ideas in the Senate and they haven't had the full autonomy to do that. The prime minister's office, as it's learned to cope with this less manageable Senate, has begun to try and tighten things up again. And and that means that we're not getting the benefit, supposedly, of some fresh ideas that might be brought to the upper house. 
which is a shame because I gather that was the whole the whole spirit of these changes was in fact to allow for more independent sober second thought. Paul Thomas is our guest this half hour. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Manitoba. We're talking about the sheer number of Senate vacancies uh, existing right now. They are spread out across the country, uh, a lot of them west of uh, uh, Ontario and west, and just the impact that it's having uh, on uh, on the Senate's ability to do its work properly and to perform its function uh, properly. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about uh, what's next because. As as uh, Professor Thomas uh, mentioned, it, it is difficult to try and replace, uh, to fill so many vacancies all at once, especially under this new system. Uh, and we'll look at what lies ahead after that. My guest this half hour is Paul Thomas. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Manitoba. We're talking about uh, just the sheer number of Senate vacancies that have built up over the past few years. It's been more than a year now, I think, since there has been an appointment to the Senate and uh, just the impact that's having. Because, of course, uh, the Senate, regardless of what you may think of it, and it does do some very good work, uh, when the provinces are not adequately representative. It, it is a it does leave a gap there. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. It will be tough to play catch up here because with this many vacancies uh, to fill them all at once uh, would cause a cause a logjam. What do you see happening in the near future? Do you see this being resolved, or will it just get worse? Because I imagine there are more senators uh, hitting seventy five, ready to retire as well. Yes, there are uh, retirements pending, so there'll be more vacancies add to the number of slots to be filled. When the new reforms were introduced and there was a lot of publicity and fanfare about the changed Senate, uh, people uh, were nominated to serve or, uh, and in the second round, you could actually self-nominate. And the advisory committees putting names into the prime minister's office uh, had more applicants than they had positions available. I don't know what that's like today. I don't know to what extent the excitement surrounding the new Senate has waned somewhat, and people maybe are, are not as uh, aware of the opportunity to be become a, a senator through uh, applying to this new process. It may be that some of the criteria that are laid down by the national uh, by the government and the national committee that guides the appointment process are are too demanding for certain people. You have to have uh, bilingual capacity. You have to have knowledge of the parliamentary process. You have to have certain regional credentials and other things. So it may be that some people are are self-excluding themselves. They're not putting their names forward to serve in, in the upper house. Uh, and it doesn't help things when people already feel distant from Ottawa, especially people in Western Canada who have a sense that uh, their voices are not heard sufficiently in official decision making in the national policy process. Even though they ridicule the Senate and dismiss the Senate as unelected and unaccountable, it's still another bit of a symbolic slap in the face if a province goes unrepresented or underrepresented in the Senate for some period of time. Manitoba, the province in which I've resided most of my life, is down by one senator. But uh, but that's not as serious as some places where there are three or four senators who, who need to be appointed. And though, uh, Canadians may not appreciate the extent to which senators, not only in their public roles, examining bills, examining spending by government, conducting studies and so on, but also in the back rooms uh, have uh, lobbied ministers to do things for their particular provinces. There's a sub- submerged level of representation that goes on through senators, which is barely seen by anyone and goes unrecognized unrecognized and unapplauded by by most people within the public. 
I have about a minute left here, but I mean, this, as, as you pointed out so correctly, this is not the sort of issue that raises a lot of public anger, specifically uh, in Western Canada. But should it? Should, should people be agitating for this representation? Because essentially they're being deprived of what's rightfully theirs. Yes, they are being deprived of representation. And, uh, you know, it, it, it may be that Trudeau didn't think through and his advisors didn't think through seriously what would happen if we had a series of minority governments within the House of Commons, which made it more difficult for the government to get through its legislative and spending program. And then on top of that, you had a second upper house which didn't have a government majority within it and which the majority of senators were not whipped by a party whip. There was no party discipline and so on. So it complicates the overall policymaking legislative process in Canada. And it it probably adds to the sense of alienation in the, the peripheries of the country, particularly where people feel this sense of psychological distance from what's happening in Ottawa, don't identify as strongly with the national government as they do with their provincial and local governments. That's been true in the polls for decades and decades and decades. But the Senate, if one of the perceived purposes of, of the reform Senate was to make people feel that the Senate mattered more and to make it more uh, respected in the eyes of citizens across the country. And that may not be happening if the Senate's performance is impaired by the failure of the machinery of government to or, uh, wind up in action and fill some of these vacancies. I should just say that Overall, order and council appointments, which are Senate appointments, these are decisions made by cabinet on the recommendation of the prime minister, are almost always seriously backlogged in Ottawa. It just seems that these routine, mundane, operational matters don't command the attention they deserve if we want to have effective government operating in this country. Paul Thomas, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Well, if you thought that traveling by air this holiday, past holiday weekend, might be a bit complicated, maybe a bit frustrating, you were certainly, certainly were not wrong. It turns out, according to reports today, Canadian airlines and airports claimed top spots in flight delays over the July long weekend, notching more than nearly any other around the world. Air Canada ranked number one in delays on Saturday and Sunday that affected 700 plus trips in total, or about two thirds of its flights, according to the tracking service Flight Aware. WestJet and budget subsidiary Swoop placed third and fourth for delays on Saturday. Toronto's Pearson Airport claimed number two spot Sunday below China's Guangzhou Airport, while Montreal placed sixth, with both seeing a higher portion of late takeoffs than London. Heathrow, presumably, or Gatwick, and Amsterdam's main airport, Sheephole, there. Here's what some passengers told Global News in Toronto at Pearson Airport this weekend. Would you avoid flying out of Toronto? Oh, my God, yes. And I would tell everybody else. This is the most orange I've seen, orange and red, I've seen on this board, or any board, for quite some time. Uh, without a catastrophic event. We were mentally prepared because we are seeing news that the airport is busy, you have to go early, but we are not prepared that it's going to be cancelled and nobody's going to be there to take the responsibility. They're running a business and I have paid to their business. The experience has been really, really bad and like the best thing they suggested for us to do was to call the call centre and then as I was calling the call centre, I was on hold for an hour and 22 minutes. I don't know where they just cut my call. 
Yeah, those are passengers at Pearson uh, this weekend. The first one referring to an Air Canada flight that she had taken into Pearson. The last two referring to a Lynx Air flight that they were meant to take uh, out of Pearson, I gather. Well, the Federal Transportation Minister has said repeatedly, Ottawa's done everything it can. My next guest thoroughly disagrees. Joining me now is Gabor Lukas. She's an airline passenger rights advocate and the president of airpassengerrights.ca. Thanks for your time tonight. Good afternoon. So just your assessment of what we've been seeing these past few months, because it seems like uh, something we've never seen at Canada's airports and with Canadian airlines. But uh, is that your sense of it as well? This is an unprecedented uh, situation where airlines have been overselling not just a single flight, but their entire network capacity and the airport's capacity. So while there may be a few seats on each flight, overall, they just don't have the necessary capacity to serve the passengers. And the problem is that they knew about it in advance. It's not some kind of rocket science or a sudden meteor hitting the airport or or an aircraft crashing on the runway that results in sudden loss of capacity. We haven't known about these capacity issues for a long time. Yeah, how is that? Because we knew, obviously, we've read a lot of late about issues with not enough staff at security, issues uh, with border guards, uh, you know, apps and so on, passengers being forced to wait. But we haven't really said much about the airlines themselves. And we know that they were obviously eager to try to make up for what had been lost over the two years when people really didn't travel very much. Well, the airlines have just been irresponsible in this situation. They, 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 um, you know, a bit of more than they can actually chew. And they knew that they didn't have the capacity in place. So this is really a self-inflicted wound by the airlines. Of course, everybody wants to make up whatever they missed uh, over the past two years. That, that, that in and on its own, there's nothing wrong with it. It's natural. But the question is, what means you use to achieve that goal? The, 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 the ends don't justify the means. Telling people, yes, we can get you from A to B, while in reality, the airline does not have the capacity in place is fundamentally wrong. It is dishonest with the public. When you saw, um, uh, well, I should ask you, what kind of stories are you hearing? What kind of volume of complaints are you getting? And what are they, and what are the stories that you are being told by passengers who've been hit by this? We are overwhelmed that they are passenger rights group. We, We get several hundred contacts per day, and we don't even have the resources to respond to each one of them. We try to select those that are particularly important and interesting and can help other people. Uh, but it's very, very, very difficult to just meet all the requests and respond to everything. Where are you seeing, what kind of stories are you hearing then from uh, what is a what is a typical, I guess there is no typical, but what is there a typical nightmare now for an airline passenger? Typical nightmare would be a passenger mid-travel with a canceled flight and Somehow the airline is not giving them information and they don't know where to go and, and they can not even be rebooked perhaps for days and the airline refuses to give them hotel and meals, uh, even though the law requires it to be provided. That is the kind of scenario that we see people missing their flights because there's such a bottleneck that they cannot get through security on time or cannot get their baggage checked in on time. Um, and uh, people whose flights a couple of weeks in advance being canceled and the airline is just not reachable for rebooking. You've mentioned that there are rules in place here. Uh, Passengers do have rights. Are those rights being respected? The passengers do have rights under federal regulations, and those regulations are being systematically violated and not enforced by the federal government. What should they be doing then in that case? What would you like to see the federal government do? I would like the federal government to start issuing 
monetary penalties to airlines that disobey the law. Under the current existing legislation, the government could issue up to $25,000 per incident in penalty to an airline that breaks the law. That's on top of any compensation owed to passengers. Once penalties were coming out, the airlines would start changing their behavior. That's not being done right now, is it? What, it's what not message, being done whatsoever. What it's, message it's, does that send the airlines? The airlines feel that they can do whatever they want with immunity and impunity. It almost feels as if there was some kind of unspoken gentleman's agreement between the airlines and the government that we are going to wring our hands and tell the media how bad it is, but really we are not going to do much. And the airlines in exchange perhaps... Uh, are no no what they really give in exchange that, that's something I want to know but it, but um, it's quite clear that 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 the airlines had some kind of advanced blessing from the government. What we do know for a fact is that when the pandemic started, the government's m- main concern was airlines' bottom line and, and financial viability and not the passengers' money. As you may recall, the passengers' um, money was stolen by the airlines. They they refused to give it back, even though no flights took place. And uh, the government, from as it turns out, from internal correspondence, was trying to protect the airlines, not the passengers. Yeah, tell me about that, because I've heard you mention this elsewhere, that that um, your fear here is that if there is an erosion of passenger rights, uh, as we're seeing, potentially, that that then becomes the norm going forward. I'm very concerned about what we are seeing now that that airlines always try to push the envelope and, and see how far they can push things, how much we can go to the bottom. Um, and and if, if the public is not willing to say up to here and no further, then, uh, then it is going to get worse because the government is not enforcing the laws. The airlines have an interest in, in erosion of passenger rights and this mayhem being a new norm. And, oh yeah, well, that's just part of travel. So unless passengers actually do take initiative and take airlines to small claims court, each time they do it to them, things are just going to get worse. So, in, you know, I, I know in Canada, people, we, are proud, we are proud of not being Americans. Uh, we are proud of not being as litigious since in the U.S. But this is really a time where, where, where remaining silent actually perpetuates wrong. Small claims court, though, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of... It's a lot of hassle for passengers. Sometimes they're, you know, obviously they've had a, a nightmarish journey, uh, but they're out a few thousand dollars or so on. Is, is small claims court the only option here? The only practical option. Theoretically, you could go to the federal government, the Canadian Transportation Agency, but they're the cause of the problem. Their lack of enforcement is what is enabling airlines to engage in this type of behavior. So that's pointless to go there. Small claims court is not that complicated, by the way. It is to some degree. But also, if there are many passengers with the same issue, then judges slowly learn more about these issues and and, uh, develop more expertise. So uh, I I consider anyone who is taking an airline to small claims court in the current situation a hero. I'm speaking with Gabor Lukas. She's an airline passenger rights advocate and president of airpassengerrights.ca. Uh, we're talking about continued issues with delays, uh, a real problem over the long weekend. Uh, as we've been finding out, Canadian airlines and airports ranking amongst the highest in the world when it came to delay, number of flights delayed. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about uh, just about what your rights as a passenger are. Gabor's already mentioned them a bit, uh, but we'll uh, dive further into that after this.
My guest this half hour is Gabor Lucas. She's an airline passenger rights advocate and president of the airpassengerrights.ca uh, website and uh, Twitter account if you're interested in seeing it. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Gabor, just some of the rights that passengers have. And again, I mean, there, there are rules in place. I gather they're a few years old now. They probably haven't been tested all that much, but this would seem like a time where passengers should be uh, fighting back if they can. W- what would you suggest then if you're, a, if you find yourself in a very difficult situation, not getting the services that you purchase? The first point is to document what is happening around you. If you're trying to make phone calls and you're not getting through video of it, if you are on hold for two hours, elevator music for two hours, so that you will be able to show to a judge, look, your honor, my lord, this thing for two hours too. Mm-hmm. It, it, people will, will understand what you went through that way. If you were at a crowded airport, take a photo, um, but ultimately also learn about your rights. So, once you arrive, and that's the point, you first have to arrive, then you can look up their passenger protection regulations on Canly, the Canadian Legal Institute's website, and really read how it works. The, the short version is that we are dealing here with cancellations within the carrier's control because it's self-inflicted. They knew about the capacity issues. They sold more tickets than they could operate. They did there. It's within the airline's control. It's not due to COVID. Let's, let's be honest about it. So the passenger is entitled to rebooking, including on flights of other airlines in some cases, and to if they didn't have an advance notice of the flight cancellation or delay, then also lump sum compensation up to $1,000 for large carriers, up to $500 for, $500 for small carriers. Those are amounts that can be enforced in small claims court. And by enforcing those rights, you're actually promoting passenger rights because you are ensuring that the airline's shabby corporate conduct comes with a price tag. As long as it's just some bad press and the media being outraged, that's not going to change how airlines operate. But if there is actually a hit on the bottom line because they have irresponsibly sold more tickets than their capacity they have, that's going to affect the airline's future behavior. It will have a behavior modification effect. Are you seeing this because I've been reading stories about this happening at airports and other parts of the world, whether it be the UK or the US? Are, is this something? Is there a specific issue here too with Canadian airlines? I would say yes. While I've seen similar issues elsewhere internationally, the magnitude and, and the length and the duration uh, is really Canada only. Um, what I heard, I haven't verified it myself, but I heard is that we are really world leaders in airline delays, for example, and it wasn't that way before. So uh, I, I believe that while we have seen similar problems in Amsterdam and London Heathrow, the the magnitude and duration of the issues we are seeing here in Canada is truly exceptional in even international standards in terms of comparing other countries. What rights do we have as passengers for some of the stuff that we've seen announced recently? Lost bags. There's been a lot of bags piling up all over the place. There's also um, Air Canada cutting back its summer schedule. We saw a reflection of what you're talking about. So um, cutting back on a schedule is basically a flight cancellation. You can put some fancy language around it, but it is what it is, flight cancellation. So they have to rebook you within nine hours of your original flight and a next available flight. If they cannot do it, they have to buy you a ticket on a competitor airline. Uh, if they didn't give you at least 14 days notice, advance notice, they have to also compensate you up to $1,000 for your flight's um, delay, or whatever you, delay you incurred to the destination meal vouchers and accommodation in some cases. If you if it's international travel, you're also owed compensation for your uh, lost wages under the Federal Carriage by Air Act. 
So there are lots of remedies available there. It's more a question of going there and getting it and forcing airlines to pay up. With yeah, respect really, to baggage, yeah. it's, it's, it's even more straightforward because the airline is liable for baggage delay or loss or damage up to t- approximately 2300 Canadian dollars. That's a uniform limit. And if the airline is telling you that uh, you can only spend $100 per day or $200 per day or something of that sort, don't believe that. That's not true. The law is that as long as you incur reasonable out-of-pocket expenses when you travel because your baggage is being delayed, the airline will have to pay for it up to a limit of 2300 Canadian dollars, approximately. It feels like such a, a crapshoot to go to the airport these days. And yet, you know, we've heard all kinds of kind words from the transportation minister, Omar Al-Gabra. Are, are they doing enough? They seem to be seem to be crying, we're powerless to help this. It's a worldwide phenomenon, and that's just the way it's going to be. Are they doing enough to, to make sure that, that the airline system is is running, is functioning properly and putting enough pressure on the airlines to make sure that it is? The federal government is clearly not doing anything to help the situation. Simply wringing uh, his hands and saying how bad it is or even how great the airlines are is not going to make things better. Uh, What happened here was a sequence of very poor corporate decisions that uh, there have to be some accountability. There has to be some accountability for them. Uh, If we allow that to go on without accountability, we are unfortunately perpetuating the problem that um, that uh, we are seeing now. And is this going to endure, do you believe? I mean, it, it, it's been blamed on being sort of, as you mentioned, unprecedented, but does unprecedented become the new norm? If Canadians are going to just put up with it, then quite possibly, yes. That's why I encourage Canadians to step up and to take action, take legal action if necessary, to create a financial consequence, a price tag for what their lives has, have done to the Canadian public. Without that, we are going to see the same situation next year and the year after. Gabor Lukash, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. 